Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discuss the texts for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost. We really hope you enjoy listening in on these observations on these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Brian Motes and Alistair Roberts, uh, who is live. He uh, finally made it here to Birmingham after being delayed in Boston along his way from Durham. So welcome, Alistair. We're very glad to have you here for a couple of weeks to uh, participate in the course with Esther Meek and also to uh, be involved in discussions about future projects. Thank you. Uh, This week, we're talking about the readings for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost, and that's August 19th in 2018. And uh, this week's readings are, there's a choice for the Old Testament readings, Proverbs 9, verses 1 through 10. A couple of fragments of Joshua 24 is an alternate Old Testament reading, Joshua 24, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping down to verses 14 through 18. The epistle reading is Ephesians 5, verses 6 through through 21, as we continue working through a large portion of Ephesians. And then uh, the gospel reading is from John 6, which is a continuation of what we've been discussing in previous episodes in John 6. And I thought we'd just begin with the, uh, the first alternate reading for the Old Testament reading, which is the beginning of Proverbs 9. Uh, this is the closing chapter of the, I guess, prologue to Proverbs, the first section of Proverbs, beginning in chapter 10. And for the next 20 or so chapters after that, you have uh, what we think of as typical kinds of Proverbs with uh, two or three line pithy sayings. Uh, but the first nine chapters lay out the context for those more specific Proverbs and also provide uh, different images and ways of thinking about Proverbs. Proverbs is a book of wisdom, of course. Uh, wisdom is the virtue quality of kings. As James Jordan has pointed out, you have different forms of revelation that correspond to different uh, offices or roles in human life uh, and to different ages in the development of Israel's history. Torah is associated with the Mosaic Covenant and with priesthood. Wisdom is the form of revelation, the form of speech that's associated with kingship. Prophecy, of course, is associated with prophets and with the latter part of Israel's history. So uh, it's uh, uh, Proverbs largely coming from King Solomon, not exclusively, but coming from largely coming from Solomon and those portions that aren't from Solomon are from other kings. That, uh, that's one of the connections that we see in Proverbs between kingship and wisdom. That, co- that connection goes all the way back to Genesis 2 and 3, where the tree of knowledge, good, knowledge of good and evil is a tree associated with kingly wisdom uh, the capacity to judge with discernment and so on. One more uh, preliminary comment uh, about Proverbs. The Hebrew word for wisdom uh, has a less intellectual cast than the uh, word wisdom might have in English. Uh, wisdom and knowledge are often used as a pair in Christian teaching. Knowledge is knowing about things, and wisdom is something about uh, how to apply things or practical knowledge. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word for wi- the the word group of wisdom has the broad sense of skill. Sometimes it's used for artistic skill, as with Bezalel and Holiab back in 
book of Exodus. I think uh, that that artistic connotation is relevant to the Proverbs. Proverbs are mainly about skill in the art of living, and that aesthetic, artistic dimension of wisdom is something that uh, Proverbs uh, brings up periodically, uh, the fittingness of certain things in certain circumstances, a fitting word, a word spoken in the right circumstances, like apples of gold and settings of silver, for example. That's an explicit artistic comparison between wise speech and uh, an artistic object. Um, but it's also about the fittingness, the suitability of the words to the circumstances. And that itself is a kind of aesthetic uh, criterion for wisdom. It's not just speech. It's well-formed speech, and it's not just well-formed speech, but it's well-formed speech that is uh, applied in the right kind of circumstances. So those are just some large preliminary comments on uh, wisdom and uh, the book of Proverbs. Looking at Proverbs 9 in particular, it's a striking juxtaposition of two different figures. You have wisdom in the first 12 verses, and then in the remainder of the chapter, it's folly. And so these characters are not just described separately, but they're juxtaposed with each other. And that juxtaposition is quite striking at certain points, particularly in verses 4 and um, in verse 16, where both wisdom and folly say the same words. They're appealing to the same person, which is worth noting that often we have the contrast between the fool and the wise in the book of Proverbs. But here we have it's the same person who's being appealed to by both, the simple, the novice. And as that person either commits to wisdom or to folly, they will become either wise or a fool. But at this point, they've not yet chosen the course that will define them. A further thing that's interesting is the characterization of wisdom and folly as, as women. That the person for whom this book is written at the very beginning is the young man under his teaching, under the teaching of his father and mother. And like a young man, he has to leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And so many of the proverbs are about choosing a wise wife, avoiding the temptation of the adulterous woman and delighting in the um, wife of your youth. And here we have two women that are contrasted, one the wise wife and the other the woman of folly. To whom will you give your heart? And at the end, you have the description of the, the wise wife who brings together these two images. She brings together a lot of the imagery associated with Lady Wisdom and the imagery associated with the concrete character of the wise wife. And so the quest for a woman, for the young man, a wife that's fitting for him, and the quest for wisdom in a broader sense are compared to each other. And in that comparison, I think we learn something both about the quest for a spouse and also about the quest for wisdom. Wisdom is something to which you must give your heart. It's not something that you just possess as knowledge or as intellect. It's something that you must pursue, beginning with the fear of the Lord, and you must give your heart to it. On the other hand, the person to whom you give your heart in the love of marriage is someone who will have a very powerful effect in determining whether you will become a fool or become someone who's wise. So it's the, the comparison is not just an allegory. The choice of the right woman is actually a real life choice between wisdom or folly. 
Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, and uh, as you pointed out, this kind of closes out the book. Closes out with that uh, the vision of or the acrostic poem about the uh, the wise wife, which uh, that frames the book of Proverbs and gives it a, a kind of a romantic. Another way to put what you're saying is that there's a kind of erotics to the pursuit of wisdom, which is one of the one of the keys, I think, to understanding at least one layer of the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs being a a book of wisdom literature. I've written and talked about this in other contexts, but um, that's not a misplacement of the Song of Songs. It belongs with the wisdom literature, partly because of the reasons you're saying. Uh, they're not just a, a a distant analogy between erotic pursuit and the pursuit of wisdom, but there's, they're entangled with each other. You talk about the pursuit of wisdom, but here we see wisdom pursuing people as well. And right. that pursuit of wisdom, the appeal of wisdom right. to the simple is um, something that perhaps we don't give enough thought to, but wisdom is not silent. It's not just something that we must discover and uncover, but wisdom is there to be listened to if we'll pay it heed. Right. And, and both, of, both of the women have making their appeals. And the, the situation seems to be um, in chapter 9 and some other places in the early chapters of Proverbs, the young man in the marketplace, and there are different, uh, different goods on offer. Uh, there's wisdom is has a house and she's offering food. Folly also has a house and she's offering stolen water and bread eaten in secret. Uh, so you know, you have wisdom and folly are kind of they're each wanting running their own restaurant and they're they're calling on the young man as he's going down the going down the street to come in and have their worst. So they're kind of public appeals to wisdom and folly, and it's uh, wisdom and folly compete out in the marketplace for the heart of the of the uh, son. And just as the woman of chapter 31 has built her house, so wisdom has built her house and will build the house of the person who responds rightly to her. Yeah. The, the other dimension I thought of as you were, as you were pointing out the analogy with the, uh, the, the sexual dynamics here is the, if you take this in more uh, strictly as a kind of typological vision, who is the son of Solomon who's going to come and choose the bride? This is uh, uh, the Lord Jesus who is pursuing the path of wisdom, choosing his bride, uh, and uh, is uh, learning the wisdom of, of his father and mother and pursuing the wisdom of his father. Uh, I want to point out something else, too, that um, uh, linked this up with, uh, I think, something that was published on the website, the Theopolis website this week, about uh, different varieties and levels of language. Uh, a, a, a very nice essay by Tim Nichols. And one of the things he points out is the he used an example from his own life uh, about uh, a debate he got into where the, the person he was discussing a, a particular topic with went, went on at length theorizing about some point. Uh, I can't remember what the specifics were, but he, he was able to find a two-liner, a two-line response that kind of cut through everything and changed the whole context of it. And he was using that not to, not to uh, offer himself as a model of wisdom particularly, but to say that there's a certain kind of speech that is uh, that's embodied in the Proverbs, uh, that is uh, penetrating, pithy, that uh, gets to the heart of a matter, that uh, cuts through a lot of fog, and that's part of the that's part of learning wisdom. It's about learning the timing of speech. It's also learning about the uh, kind of speech that will uh, have the kind of incisive effect that uh, that you want to have. It's a contrast, I suppose, with the law, which is about receptive obedience and. Wisdom being about perceptive insight. Right, right. Uh, 
Uh, I'll, I'll make one other comment about this, and then uh, we'll move on to the alternative uh, uh, reading for Old Testament reading. Um, we've already made this comment, but just to anticipate what we're going to talk about eventually with the uh, gospel reading, uh, that wisdom is offering food and wine. Uh, I suppose that um, verse 2, uh, verse 5, uh, the word for food is lechem. I, I didn't look up the Hebrew, but my guess is that it's lechem, which is the generic general term for food, but also the word for bread. So she's offering food and wine, uh, perhaps even bread and wine, uh, and that's the she's uh, setting the table of wisdom. That's going to feed into our, pardon the pun, feed into our discussion of John 6, where Jesus offers himself as the uh, food and drink for his uh, disciples. Uh, the alternative reading for the Old Testament reading is uh, from Joshua 24, and it's the first part of and the last part of the first of Joshua's farewell speeches. The first 18 verses of Joshua 24 uh, contain that initial speech, and then that goes to actually verse 15, then the people respond, and then beginning of verse 19, Joshua begins a second speech in response to their response. This is uh, at the end of the very last chapter of the book of Joshua. The conquest is finished as far as Joshua's lifetime is concerned. There's going to be other work to be done by the successors during the time of Judges. But Joshua's work is done. Uh, the land has been divided up, and now the different tribes are going to pursue the uh, conquest in their local areas, their regions. And uh, Joshua giving this farewell address is part of a kind of covenant renewal event. Uh, and the ordering of the, the sequence of events in Joshua 24 is uh, following the uh, typical sequence of uh, many covenant events in the Bible where you have uh, a declaration from the Lord, there's a recital of the Lord's actions, and that there's a call to decision and faithfulness to the covenant. And that's what's happening in the uh, first part of the chapter here, mainly with Joshua reciting, uh, giving a recital of Israel's history up to that up to this point, and then calling them to obedience and faith in the people swearing uh, fidelity to the Lord. One thing worth note noticing here, I think, is the emphasis upon the water crossings, the serving foreign gods on the other side of the river, the river Euphrates, and then the emphasis in verse 6, following upon the event of the Red Sea crossing. Um, it's not part of the reading, but it occurs within the, the passage. And then the reminder in verse 14 that they served other gods on the other side of the river and in Egypt. There's a, a sense of a spiritual geography that's been drawn up, that as they've divided out the land and found the boundaries of the land, that is also a set of boundaries that are defined by worship. And this land is defined by a break with the land of Egypt and a break with the land of um, the far side of the Euphrates. And just as Israel is defined by this carving up of the land between the tribes, so you have this description of the land in terms of dis decisive breaks with form of forms of life that is mapped onto the geography of the country. And it's interesting, just reading through the story of Scripture, how often Israel is defined at those boundaries, whether that's the Jabbok and receiving its name at that crossing, or whether it's the event of... Um, the Jordan entering into the land at the very beginning of this book. And so the Jordan crossing, the, um, the events of the Red Sea crossing and the events of coming from the other side of the river 
all of those help Israel to place itself within the land as a site of spiritual meaning that is um, to dwell in this land is to be defined by a spiritual geography, not just a physical one. And to remain in the land is to remain in terms defined by that spiritual geography. Right. And that's one of the, another way to state that is to state that this is the holy land. The, the, the water boundaries separate this off as the Lord's land, where the Lord alone is going to be, is supposed to be worshipped and served. You're talking about water. You don't have to say it. We're talking, we're thinking baptism around here, right around this table. And so baptism, this would, this would feed into a baptismal theology that uh, there's a, what the water crossing is a crossing into that and into a place where the Lord is, is worshiped. It's a, it's a passage away from the idols. It's a, uh, it's a passage out of the turning from worthless idols and, and serving the, serving the living God. And more generally a creation image that the land right. is taken out of the waters. Right. Uh, Jim Jordan has pointed out that this is uh, the first time we have this explicit reference to the to Israel uh, serving idols in Egypt. Uh, you've read through the entirety of the Pentateuch, and there's been warnings about not serving the idols, uh, serving the gods of Egypt, and warning about not serving the gods of the Canaanites. But there's nothing at the beginning of Exodus. You're not told that uh, Israel has been worshiping the gods of Egypt. You're not told that part of their extraction from Egypt is their extraction from attachment to the gods of Egypt. Uh, but once we get to uh, the the end of the uh, the uh, Hexateuch, if we have a Hexateuch, once we get to the end of Joshua, then suddenly this, this fresh light shed on what's been happening earlier. Uh, suddenly we realize that idolatry in Egypt was a factor in the Exodus, a factor probably in Israel's oppression in Egypt. That's the pattern that's going to happen throughout the judges when they when you worship when Israel worships false gods, they get oppressed by the Gentiles. That's exactly what was happening in Egypt. We now find out, and I think that also explains some of the interesting progression of the uh, the plagues in Exodus, because the the initial plagues are falling on both Egyptians and Israelites, and only after you get through the first few plagues do you have this separation. And part of that, I think, is uh, a an invitation for Israel to separate off from the from the Egyptians. The plagues are designed to claim Israel as a holy people and to uh, wean them off of the gods that they've been worshiping. Uh, let's move on to the uh, gospel reading in uh, John 6. We've been in John 6 for quite a while, and uh, I've repeated a couple of times the, the fact that this John 6 and the discourse about Jesus as the bread from heaven, the bread who, the, the one who gives his life as flesh and blood as food and drink, is part of a, an, an exodus sequence that's going throughout these chapters. Again, in the light of what we just looked at in the book of Proverbs, uh, we can see that Jesus is also, that there would be a wisdom dimension to this too, uh, that uh, Jesus comes as the wisdom of God uh, to offer himself as the, as the bread for his people and as, uh, as wisdom. One, I mean, one of the perennial debates here is whether Jesus is referring to his death or he's referring to spiritual food and drink, whether he's re referring to Eucharistic, the re Eucharistic meal. And I think that my, st I stated this in last week's episode, but uh, get your thoughts on this, Alistair. Uh, I think that in the first instance, Jesus is talking about the cross. He's giving his flesh and blood. That's not language that's typically used for the Eucharist. Uh, it is language that that's used for sacrifice. And Jesus gives himself for the li life of the world on the cross. So he's talking about that self-offering in the context of a gospel that's being 
uh, written for and delivered to the early church, uh, which is a Eucharistic community. It seems like that that context is going to bring out the Eucharistic dimensions to this discourse, even if that's not at the base level. There's still Eucharistic overtones. So Jesus gives himself for the life of the world on the cross, and then we participate in that new life that he's given by receiving his body and blood in the Eucharist. When you look through the chapter of John 6, I think you also see a series of allusions to um, Eucharistic-style imagery. Um, There's a reference to a seeming allusion to Jesus taking the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them in um, verse 11. Then you have the bread of Jesus as the bread of God associated with sacrificial language. You have the manna coming down from heaven. You have the the food that is eaten and you can live forever, which again would be an allusion to the tree of life. And I think within those images, there is something sacramental being suggested about this, which I think is attached to, it's attached to the Eucharist, but it's not immediately about that. I think it's Mm -hmm. primarily about the cross. Mm -hmm. But then that is how we... um, one of the events in which we receive it, yeah. the blessing of that. Yeah, so I was, I was looking at the introductory um, uh, comments to a recent dissertation about John 6, and uh, this was a defense of the idea that John 6 is Christological rather than Eucharistic, which I thought was a very odd contrast. Uh, I want to say that uh, it's uh, Eucharistic because it's Christological. Those are, those are not, we shouldn't play those off against each other. Uh, but see, um, you know, see them as uh, integrated with each other. The verse sixty-three has been a has in some in some traditions functioned as kind of a Eucharistic touch point. The flesh profits nothing, and that's been seen as a uh, so almost a motto for Eucharistic theology in some traditions. Uh, and so the the actual reception of physical bread profits nothing. That's the way that that's the way that's applied or taken. Um, but I think. I don't think that's what, what Jesus is speaking of. He's just t- spoken of his flesh as his flesh and blood as as that as the as the uh, food and drink that gives us life. And uh, the contrast in verse sixty three is between the spirit who gives life and the flesh which profits nothing. Which in that contra- in that contrast, it's spirit less flesh that profits nothing. It's the kind of flesh and spirit uh, contrast that Paul uses and we find elsewhere. Jesus offers his flesh as uh, true food, as a uh, as Paul says, a spiritual food and drink. Uh, so I think that the flesh profits nothing in the sense of flesh by itself. Our flesh profits nothing. The Spirit gives life, but Jesus is the one filled with the Spirit, the one anointed by the Spirit who gives his flesh and blood for our food and drink. And in verse 56, it stresses that eating the flesh and drinking the blood is the means of abiding in him. Right. And so he is the source of life. Now, John doesn't have uh, an account of the institution of the Lord's Supper, but within this chapter, I think we have much of the theology of it presented to us Mm -hmm. in a different fashion. Um, Presumably, John expected the readers of his epistles to be familiar with the, um, the institution of the Supper from an access to one of the other Gospels, right? at least Mark probably. But here I think he fleshes out um, the theology of the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, with 
a deeper account of how that fits in with Christ's sacrifice. Within within the uh, narrative of John six, we, we also have this. Uh, the climax is uh, leads to this divergence between, on the one hand, the Jews and disciples of Jesus. The Jews are grumbling about Jesus. Uh, they're questioning, how can this man give us his flesh and blood? And then, even within the disciples, verse sixty six tells us that there's a there's a split. Some withdraw from following Jesus, uh, but then Jesus' words and uh, this episode lead to this confession or this commitment by Peter when uh, Jesus asks if the twelve also want to leave. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So uh, Jesus' Jesus' words are divisive, but that division, uh, at the same time there's that division, it confirms the twelve in their attachment to Jesus and their desire to remain with him and follow him. When he talks about the fact that no one can come to him unless it's been granted by the Father, how do you think we can have an understanding of election and irresistible grace that is more fully fleshed out in terms of a Trinitarian theology? That's a, that's a really good question. It's one that uh, I should give more thought to. Um, that, that reference, though, uh, uh, among others in John 6, uh, I think it's... Heading, it goes. It goes back to the discussion in John five, where Jesus also brings up his relationship with his father at some length and talks about the grant of authority that he receives from his father, particularly the authority to judge and the authority to give life to whom he will. So that's a. I alluded to that. I think in the last episode of the podcast, that connection between the Trinitarian, uh, the Father Son dynamics of chapters five and six in John's Gospel. So the <clears throat> the uh, statement in, in 665, unless uh, no man can come to me unless it be granted from my father, this is part of the, the grant of the father to the son that he has authority to give life to whom he will. Uh, that's, that's a somewhat different picture than we have, for example, in Ephesians 1, where election is an act of the father who elects in the son. Uh, here it's an act of the, still an act of combined act of the father and the son, a unified act of the father and the son. But it's uh, now it's explained in terms of conferral of authority from the Father to the Son. And, uh, did you have any thoughts on how that might modify in any way our our understanding of election? Not particularly. Although what you do see, I think, within John's Gospel more generally, is this fleshing out of the Father giving to the Son, and the Son protecting what the Father has given to him. And so you have the Father as the vine dresser, Christ as the vine, or you have the description in the the prayer of um, chapter 17 of the Son protecting what the Father has right. given to him. Right. And that, the gift of the bride to the Son by the Father, I think is a, in the Spirit, I think is again a fuller portrayal of the, the picture of election that I think enables us to perceive more readily how the calling of the church and the people of God is for the glory of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it would also um, have some effect on, I mean, it, it's uh, uh, the Trinitarian dynamics, and even even if you uh, do go with the, with the Pauline kind of formulation, that election is election in Christ. You still have that Trinitarian dimension to it. 
And that, um, uh, I think, works against the kind of deterministic uh, tendencies you might have in a strictly Unitarian kind of, where a single God is set up over against uh, the world, determining something about the world. There's this uh, internal dynamic within God and the the and, and not just in the in the determination of election, but also in the end, the telos of election. Election is for the purpose of bringing these into, as Jesus Jesus says in John seventeen, into this uh, union of the Father and the Son, so that uh, the Father and Son are in the disciples, the disciples are in them. So it has this uh, this uh, the, the the dimension of communion is brought out as a both in the origin of election. And in the uh, uh, in the goal of election, these are chosen for communion. Both um, John six and in places like um, John three, there's an emphasis in the teaching of the gospels upon the descent of Christ from heaven and his future ascent. Um, in a way that we don't find that same emphasis in teaching elsewhere in the gospels. You have the description of the actual ascent um, in Acts. And yet here I think there is a theological significance given to the event that maybe bears um, closer examination. The other Gospels might talk in more elusive language of, I have come in order to, which Simon Gathercole and others have seen as a reference to some descent from heaven. Mm-hmm. But here it's a far more overt, and the proof of the descent is found in the future ascent into heaven. How can we come to a fuller understanding of the significance of the ascension within Christian doctrine? This is obviously something Douglas Farrell and others have yeah. written on. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, haven't, um, I don't have a good, question, a good answer to that question within the context of John 6 particularly. Um, and John is John does have a unique understanding of the of the ascension in a couple of ways. I mean the the connection he makes between the ascent of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit in John seven and in the upper room discourse both uh, the link that he draws between the ascension of Jesus and the elevation of Jesus on the cross uh, that's unique to John among the Gospels. Um, the cross being a part of the glorification of the Son of Man rather than his humiliation. Uh, so there'll be some of the dimensions that John brings out. I don't have a clear idea of what John 6 particularly yes. um, contributes to it. It's interesting, the question <clears throat> of what is the hard saying that people are yeah. balking at? Is it the fact that eating his bread and living, eating his flesh and living forever, or is it the statement that he is the bread that has come down from heaven? And it seems that his response is to the latter offense, Mm -hmm. to the idea that he has come down from heaven. Mm -hmm. And that connection between the teaching about the flesh, the life given by his flesh, and the teaching of the descent um, and the future ascension is one that maybe needs to be teased out a bit more. Mm -hmm. I mean, within Calvin's theology, he talks about the work of the Spirit in connecting things that are far distant Mm -hmm. and the way that we participate in Christ who is in heaven, his body, the significance of his body being in heaven, I think, is mm-hmm. an important part of that mm-hmm. in his theology. Right. As you said, the, the, that dynamic of descent and, and ascent is 
present in the other Gospels, more overtly in some than others. But uh, uh, John brings that out more uh, more explicitly that the uh, it's the one who descends and only the one who descends who can then ascend. It's the only one who descends from heaven who can speak of heavenly things, as John, as Jesus says in John three. So there's a the, his origin is essential to the mission that he has on earth, and his origin is also essential. His origin in heaven is also essential to his eventual ascension into heaven and all that follows from that. Uh, that's uh, uh, yeah, that's implicit in the other gospels, but that that dis- ascending, descending, ascending dynamic is much more filled out, and as you were saying, and filled out in John's gospel. And just was noting earlier about Calvin's theology, the emphasis upon. The role of the Spirit is striking because it's the personal work of the Spirit that leads to the efficacy of the sacrament. Yes. It's not a statement right. about the flesh itself and right. substance and right. accidents. Because the flesh profits nothing. Yeah. Yes, it's <laughs> about the work of the Spirit yeah. in connecting us to the ascended Christ. Right, right. Uh, let's spend a few minutes with uh, Ephesians 5. We have verses 6 through 21 in this uh, uh, for the readings for this coming Sunday. Um, uh, this is uh, uh, generally part of Paul's uh, exor- uh, hortatory section. He's laid out the gospel both as it applies to you could say individuals who are uh, delivered from death and trespasses and sins and made alive together with Christ, uh, the church that's formed by the destruction of the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, the one new humanity that's formed. And through chapters 4 and 5, Paul is giving these exhortations to the Ephesians to live according to the calling that they've been they've been given as the uh, those who have given new life as the community that's been given new life as the new uh, the community of the new Adam. Uh, there's a, a couple of uh, general exhortations here. One of them has to do with light and darkness. We are children of light as uh, uh, those who are children of our heavenly Father, who's the Father of lights. Uh, we are children of light insofar as we are. Joined to the sun, pun on S O N and S U N. We're joined to the source of light, the radiance of the Father's glory, and therefore, because we're in the light, we're not to live according to darkness or participate in the deeds of darkness. At one level, you say that's a simple contrast of evil, good and evil. Light is good, darkness is evil. The uh, original contrast of darkness and light is not good and evil, but rather uh, unformed and formed. Creation as it comes uh, in Genesis 1-1 is dark as well as shapeless and empty, and then God makes light. Uh, light is eschatological. Light is what comes at the end. And every mo- every day moves from darkness to light, and that's the pattern also of redemptive history in general, that there's a movement from the relative darkness of the Old Covenant to the rising of the sun that comes in the incarnation of the resurrection. So uh, in certain places in the New Testament, that darkness light language is, I think, fundamentally about the Old and New Covenants. I think that's how it's, uh, how John uses it in his gospel, at least in, in initially. The uh, light comes into the world, the darkness cannot overcome it. Uh, that's not about good and evil in the first instance. That's about the coming of the new, the coming of the day, uh, and the fact that the day dispels the darkness, the coming of the new dispels the Old Covenant. And even though the uh, Jews defend the uh, darkness of the Old Covenant, the nighttime of the Old Covenant, they can't stop the light from rising and shining. So uh, whether Paul's uh, using the terms in those that contrast of darkness and light in that way, or if he's using it in 
a more straightforward moral sense. I don't think it's clear from the context, but that those two dimensions at least uh, should be in play as we're trying to figure out what Paul's getting at. So the, the implication would be that uh, walking in the light means walking according to the new realities that have come in Christ. The fact that you're uh, united to Christ in his resurrection and ascension, the fact that we now have one new humanity that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And the emphasis upon the dawn that you have within um, the allusion to Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your the light has come, and you must awake. There's the appropriate way of responding to the dawn is to live in a way that is alert and to come to that state of alert wakefulness. Whereas those who live in dark, in the darkness, are those who sleep, those who are lacking the alert state of readiness. There are those who are unprepared, those who whose minds are darkened by sleep. The other thing that I find striking here is the emphasis upon speech, which you have more generally running through mm-hmm. the contrast between filthiness, foolish talking, coarse jesting, um, and the empty words by which people can be deceived. And then the importance of speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, that we should be defined by a different sort of speech. Yes, uh, noted that also last in the last episode at the end of chapter 4. So that's been a recurring theme throughout these exhortations. And that speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is one of the signs of the work of the Spirit. Uh, it's the, the contrast that Paul draws between uh, drunkenness with wine and being filled with the Spirit. Uh, Ambrose speaks of being inebriated with the Spirit, but that produces two kinds of two kinds of speech, uh, two kinds of song, um, and um, the fact that we're speaking the Psalms and singing and making melody. Music is an expression of the presence of the Spirit. It's a sign of the Spirit's presence. And I'll refer again to uh, something that was on our website recently. John Ahern, who is a uh, studying, uh, doing a PhD in music at Princeton University, uh, had a piece on this passage on Theopolis recently. It, we may have published it in two parts. I don't remember. Uh, it was published in two parts, and he was particularly looking at the contrast between drunkenness and song, drunkenness and music, and pointing out that that's not an association that, that's uh, unique to Paul. That there's this classical contrast between or classical connection between certain kinds of music making and drunkenness or contrast between drunkenness and the right kind of music making. Uh, So he provides some uh, interesting cultural background to Paul's exhortation there. Again, in verses 17 to 21, we have, as we've seen in the earlier chapters, a Trinitarian pattern to Paul's teaching, being filled with the Spirit, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Trinitarian pattern is something that suffuses this, or diffu- mm-hmm. is diffused throughout this entire text of Ephesians. Mm-hmm. And Paul is never more than a few verses away from portraying the Christian life in these terms. Yeah, and the, the, um, the particular uh, relationships of uh, the different persons are interesting the, to, the, to the believer. So we're filled with the Spirit, one of the signs or uh, effects of being filled with the Spirit is we give thanks in the name of Jesus. And the the object of that thanksgiving and praise is the Father. So it's it's the reversal of the kind of creedal order, uh, Father, Son, Spirit. This is Spirit, 
uh, son, father, and different different kind of variegated types of relationships with these uh, with the with the persons. I also wanted to highlight uh, uh, verse thirteen. Just uh, I've been taken with the last part of verse thirteen for a number of years. Everything that becomes visible is light. Everything that is is in the light is light. Uh, what what is your New King James? How does it put it? But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, has different implications. I've taken it um, taken it to have a at least an analogy with kind of the natural phenomenon of light. Light makes other things illuminators. So uh, you can only see things in the light because light is reflected from those things. And so anything that's in the light actually becomes a source of light. It's a source of reflected light. It's a reflection of an original source of light, but it's still a, a derivative light source. So everything that is becomes visible, this is my new American standard translation, everything that becomes visible is light. And it just seems like a was well, an image of Christian living. I think that's a it's a it's a beautiful image of uh, what we're called to be, which is to be light. We are light, but we're light because we become become visible in the light of Christ. As light, we're sh- we shine in a dark world. As light, we expose the darkness. As derivative light, reflectors of the light of Christ, we're we're uh, shining in the in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome us. And that certainly would fit with the allusion back to Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, right. and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Right, right. So, the, so it, the, there, it's Jerusalem that's becoming the, the light source. Not, not the original light source, but the light source as a, uh, as a reflector of the eternal light that comes from God. And also, it, it, I, I figured there must be something... To make of this uh, in terms of physics, but I haven't—I don't know enough about physics to uh, understand how that might be. In what sense might it be true as, as a matter of sheer physics that everything that comes into the light is light? That sounds like it might be something uh, Stephen Hawking or somebody might uh, come up with. But the statements that were called to redeem the time because the days are evil—I'm pondering how to unpack that. What does it mean to redeem time? Does it just mean to fill our time with more things? Or is there something about our time that needs to be related to the light? How do we relate evil days to the day that has dawned? My NESB translation, again, makes this easier than it should and translates as making the most of the time. You've got uh, redeeming the time, yep. uh, which is the, the, the literal meaning. I mean, redeeming has the sense of purchase, purchase out of slavery. It's uh, it's it's not just that would seem to have some mean something more than just exploiting the time to its ma- to its maximum, uh, getting the most you can out of the time. Especially given the way that Paul has uh, generally uses the terminology of redemption, there has to be some sociological aspect to that. Exactly what that is, I'm, I don't have a good uh, good answer for. The themes that he's already explored in the verses prior suggest images of the dawn arising, but also the contrast between living in darkness as those upon whom the dawn has not yet arisen. And I wonder whether that provides some clues of how to unpack it. The days themselves are 
in some sense, shrouded still within the darkness, but by living as those upon whom the light has dawned, those days can be delivered from those that darkness, and we can redeem time itself so it's lived in a way that is appropriate to those of the day. Um, the alert people that correspond to the, the time of the dawning of the sun. Yeah, so the, redeeming the time would, um, I'm just repeating what you said, I think, uh, redeeming the time would be connected with living according to the light, being lights in the world, shining into the world with um, all that that involves in different places of scripture as an attraction in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Uh, your light is on a, a lampstand. You do your good deeds so that men will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father. Um, that would be a that would be an aspect of redeeming the time because you're you're living in the light. You're displaying the light. You are light, uh, reflecting the light of Christ. And, and in that sense, our days can be related to the eschatological day of right, the Lord. Right. Um, and as they're related to that, they're no longer related to the days of evil, the days of darkness that defines the rest of the people of of our age. Right. Yeah, so by living living in the light means living in the light living in the light of living in the light means living the life of the eschaton now in the midst of the darkness. And that is not only an anticipation of that future day daybreak that's coming. Uh but it actually is to use Paul's language is actually redeeming the time and making this time of mixed darkness and light a time of increasing light. And not just for our own pattern of living, but also for those who witness that light reflected. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.